millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the McClifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. My guest today is a man who has travelled a journey into right-wing extremism and out again and is now intent on warning of the dangers of radicalisation that lurk, in particular, on YouTube. Caelan Robertson is originally from Kilkenny and moved with his family to UK when he was a teenager. He got involved in making what were propaganda videos for some right-wing extremists, which garnered huge pickup on the social media channel. During this time, he travelled extensively to record these videos with different extremists, including the well-known British anti-Islamic activist Tommy Robinson. Since seeing what I suppose you might call the error of his ways, Caelan has been active in warning of the dangers of radicalisation, which is a phenomenon that appears to be growing all the time. To what extent it is a threat in this country is one of the things we will discuss today. Caelan, you're very welcome. Thanks so much for having me, and uh, yeah, thanks for having this conversation. Caelan, just if you could give us a small bit of your background, where you grew up and how, how you originally got into filmmaking. Uh, so I was born in Scotland, but I grew up in Kilkenny uh, from the age of sort of two till my early teenage years. Uh, moved to Manchester when my parents split up to go and live with my dad. I remember the UK was, I remember when I was always visiting, the UK was just somewhere that was a lot more like, exciting to me because I wanted to do media and I wanted to do art and I wanted to do these kind of creative subjects and that's something that wasn't really available as much in in Kilkenny at the time and um, I um, always just like loved filmmaking when I was younger like I remember I bought like a camera when I was sort of 14 and was always making short videos and things like that Um, and I studied it at university in the end when I moved to London at uh, sort of 19 um, and yeah, just was was sort of always always sort of making films. It was very arty though back then. It was usually films about like you know it was the job I had at the time was kind of marketing, and it was making short films for boutique pet companies and restaurants in London and things. So it was it was all just sort of yeah like a PR kind of marketing uh, angle on film. And then how did you get into the type of radicalized area you you ended up in? Was there anything that sparked that off, or how did you end up there? Yeah, I was never political. Um, I uh, moved to you know London without any kind of uh, historical like background in politics. I hadn't really voted before. I didn't really uh, recognize much of a difference between the the Tories or the Labour Party. None of that really. And I remember when uh, sort of 2016 ca- came along it was. Um, Working in an office, living in central London, had, you know, I guess what would be described as like fairly liberal friends, uh, quite a normal life. Uh, but everything sort of started to become a bit politicized. I remember you had people in the office and friends all talking about the rise of, you know, potentially Brexit happening and people like Farage and and then Trump had announced his campaign and everyone was really talking about it. And I remember I never read the news, never read really mainstream media very much. Um but uh, I would get my information from YouTube, like grew up on YouTube, like most people sort of my age at that time. That's where I'd get, you know, commentary and, and, and information from and comedy from and everything from. So I remember um, 
one of the significant things that happened that year, one of the big turning points was I uh, I heard about the Orlando shooting. It was America's worst mass shooting at the time. 50 gay people were killed in a nightclub by an, an Islamist. And I remember knowing nothing about Islam, nothing about any of this stuff really, and typing into YouTube uh, hours after it happened, the Orlando shooting. And all the top-rated results that came up, I remember, were by sites called Rebel Media, uh, were were well-known right-wing figures like Milo Yiannopoulos and Gavin McGuinness. They were outside of the Pulse nightclub doing a gay kiss-off. They were talking really uh, intensely about how Islam and verses in the Quran inspired this and it's incompatible with LGBT rights and gay people are going to experience this all across the West as we import more people who, from, from Islamic countries and it's going to happen more and more. They pointed to a Channel 4 documentary that had just come out called The Jihadi Next Door where Muslims in London were pointing at buildings and saying we're going to throw gay people off here. It had just come out that there was you know people flying Islamic flag, uh, ISIS flags in Hyde Park in London. And you had all of this kind of crazy kind of culture war stuff happening and it was all all of the top rated results of YouTube. And it just was really compelling. And I think what I found was once I'd watched a couple of those videos, and it did resonate with me quite a lot because I hadn't heard rhetoric like this any time before. And the people that were talking about this were well-dressed. They looked like me. They looked diverse. They didn't look like, you know, kind of racist types or the types that maybe bullied me for being gay when I was at school. They seemed, they looked young and diverse. It was black people saying it and, and women saying it and everybody saying it. And I was recommended a ton more videos to the sort of similar content about, you know, the evils of lots of different types of immigration or communism or or showing me um, loads of videos by people like Stefan Molyneux, these people that poise themselves as kind of philosophers and great thinkers uh, who were exploring all these different ideas that were under attack because of free speech and the left running the media and all these kind of new concepts. And um, yeah, I just remember getting email newsletters from YouTube to watch these things all the time. And I really just, I started listening to them on the way to work and more and more and more. And I remember the LGBT thing is the thing that was most important to me than the idea that this stuff was under attack. I remember when I came out when I was sort of really, really young and feeling like a really big part of my identity is is that, as being a member of the LGBT community. And that could potentially be under attack. And uh, and what if we had a nightclub shooting here in Soho or in London or one of the only places that I felt like completely free and open for the first time when I went to them? And it was deeply, deeply concerning. I remember Trump held up a flag a couple of weeks later, the LGBT rainbow flag, and he said, I will protect the LGBT community from a radical, hateful ideology, referring to, to Islam. And I remember Hillary Clinton didn't say anything about it. And it felt like the right, especially this online, very, very polished right, were really there protecting free speech, women rights, and, and, and gay rights. Genuinely, that sounds crazy, but that's how it appeared, and that's, that's genuinely how I felt about it. Um, and a few months later, I remember uh, realizing that there was no one in Britain making content like this. There was no one in the UK who was going to, say, left-wing rallies like they were doing in America and asking them, quote, tough questions and, and countering their narrative and, 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 and sort of putting it up online. You know, these videos were getting millions and millions of views in the US, and I realized that actually... Someone should do it in this country because no one is holding the left accountable in this country and no one is talking about these things in this country. No one understands the importance of all of this. So I went out with a camera. I went to a, a feminist rally and I asked them why they don't like Trump. And a lot of them genuinely didn't really have answers straight away. So put those videos, put those clips together, put it online. And that night it got millions and millions of views. It was shared by kind of all of the top right wing fingers that I've been watching for years. And it all just took off from there. Yeah, and the thing that strikes me there, uh, Caelan, is in terms of how long it took from what you might call that initial spark to get to a position where you became totally immersed in this notion, politically aware, if you want to put it that way, albeit from a very radicalised 
position. Whereas, like I would suspect the vast majority of people in their early 20s don't have any politics and then suddenly uh, they get to that point where they're totally clued into politics, but from a radicalised position. I mean, there's been loads of research that's been carried out into people, uh, into how long it takes someone to um, to become radicalised on the internet now. And the average time is six weeks. And this, this is done by looking through people's search engine history and looking through all of their, their, their results and then, and then examining them afterwards. It's an ex- extremely rapid process. If you imagine the sheer volume of content that there is on the internet, you know, radicalization traditionally, like in the 80s and 90s, you know, you go to a pub, there's a group of skinheads, you can kind of see they're dodgy, you know, they'll, they'll have you come in and they'll bring you into their eye, you know, slowly, and there's like leaflets, and information is shared very, very slowly, it's not very slick. Whereas now, it's an incredible amount of resource that's kind of pumped into people's news feeds at a rate that we can't even barely comprehend yet. Thousands and thousands of hours of video, you know, um, push to people in, in a way that looks very, very compelling and really, really decent. And it's very, very easy to have your entire worldview shifted overnight just in a change in your newsfeed. You know, we spend, I think the average person scrolls through 300 feet of newsfeed every day. That's the length of a football stadium. Our entire brains are starting to be reshaped to the type of information that's curated that we see on our Facebook newsfeed, Twitter newsfeed, and YouTube newsfeed. And if you shift that rapidly by starting to like a few right-wing pages or starting to watch a few right-wing videos, those algorithms will pump an incredible amount of more extreme content just to keep you hooked so that you can stay up longer on the sites. And it has a really profound impact on you. It feels like, I remember scrolling through my newsfeed, I remember seeing all these stories, I remember this constant outrage and the constant stuff that was being pumped. It felt like I was totally under attack, it felt like the world was collapsing, it felt like free speech was over, it felt like every day there was another horrible thing that was happening. You know, The way that they would weaponize these things that, was, that were going on, you know, like the Jesse Smollett hate crime hoax, um, that happened. That was exploding all over my newsfeed to make arguments that hate crimes weren't really true, they weren't really happening. Here's an example of this one that's fake. Here's an example of this one that was fake. Everything was highly, highly weaponized. You had terror attacks nonstop in Europe at the time, in France and and on all across the place in 2016 and all across the UK. And there were these were 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 uh, extremely useful for right-wing figures who would absolutely blow up all over uh, everybody's news feeds with it, talking about importing these people and talking about how this is going to be the new norm and Britain is under Sharia law. I mean, it was a huge amount of stuff. And it was really convincing, genuinely. I would, It didn't match reality, but um, I was, and millions of other people who were engaging with this content, completely like engrossed by it. I think the top seven out of ten most engaged Facebook um, uh, posts over the last seven days, we're all Ben Shapiro and the Daily Wire still. So this kind of reactionary content is still like really at the forefront of a lot of it. But being on the receiving end of it is completely uh, overwhelming. And it yeah, it takes about six weeks. Took me a couple of months. Yeah, and then so you, you're in a position now where you, you're, you're convinced this is the case and that you're defending free speech and you go out and, as you say, you attend these rallies, you make these videos. And it's fair to say that you obviously manipulate those videos to portray precisely the agenda you're following. When you're doing that, are you, in, in terms of the mentality you would have had at the time, is it a question, are you genuinely uh, convincing yourself that what you're doing is not manipulating these people's worldview, but basically opening up the truth to them or whatever way you want to put it in that respect. So genuinely, I felt like the overarching things that were extremely important at the time that were genuinely under attack is that gay people will not be able to exist. 
in the West in 30 years when all these things take over. Free speech is under attack, and that's about to be to be crushed, and women's rights will, will start being reduced if we import all these. These are the core things I thought were immovable and the most important thing ever. And I felt like if I wanted to wake all of these people up and wake people up in the UK and the people that I was working with and Tommy and all of us were on a bit of a crusade to just get as many people listening to us and understanding this stuff as possible. If we had to sort of bend the truth to cater to the algorithms, put stuff out that was a bit more selective, put stuff out that was a bit manipulated to... Uh, get more views to have content do better, then that was something we were willing to do for the like greater ideological good of waking everybody up. It was kind of like, uh, you know, YouTube would reward our videos if they were more extreme, if they were more uh, associated with uh, like conflict or, you know, really, really crazy interactions, uh, far more than sit down, reasonable talking teleprompter videos. And so we would sort of feed that algorithm and feed that those recommendations by going out and creating content that was funneled into that as much as possible. And a lot of the time that meant, yeah, selectively editing stuff. The real world is, I guess, a bit more is more boring than than the internet would have you believe and all these sites would have you believe. So we would we would heighten a lot of that stuff up. But again, it was for the greater good. I still believed in all of that stuff. Um, I just felt like it was a necessary kind of evil, um, which is which is uh, yeah, which is why I was doing it. The other thing that would, would jump out at me coming from a, a bit of a distance is uh, in particular that you, your belief that this was in the best interest of asserting the rights of LGBT people because an awful lot of us would have the impression that extremists, particularly right-wing extremists, that they're largely intolerant of LGBT people as they are with all sorts of minorities. Yet for you, it seems to have been a case that they, they were going to advance the rights of LGBT people. Well, I mean, the rhetoric that all of them are pushing and still to this day is the left are the real bigots. They import people. They prefer Muslims. They import people that hate gays. And the right are the ones that are really tolerant. You have Lady Maga, who is a drag queen that literally has Make America Great Again all over dresses that she wears to Trump parties and Trump hotels. You had a movement called Gays uh, Twinks for Trump, which was this crazy movement that was happening at the time, all shared and elevated by, by Trump and all the people I was working with. The right used to collect a huge amount of of LGBT people, Dave Rubin, all of these different types who are right at the top of it and say, look, we're not, you know, racist, we're not far right like the media say we are. We have a hugely diverse group of uh, gay people and, and women and all of this stuff and we are the tolerant ones. And honestly, from the outside looking at it, it's completely believable. I mean, I, I, I felt completely... Uh, at home with those people. I was hired by them. They were extremely nice to me. They would always tell me that my views were completely correct and I was going to be under attack. And Tommy would even tell me when I first met him, you know, that um, he saw my original videos going to these rallies and he was like, you're completely right. So many of my friends are black and, and gay people and I'm really worried for for my, my gay friends and what's going to happen to them and I'll protect you. And I didn't realize a lot of it was extremely homophobic until I'd been right in the middle of it for, for about a year and a half and the mask started to slip with a lot of them. And they started to generally genuinely be extremely homophobic behind my back or a bit more covertly or I started overhearing comments but genuinely I believe that it was it was it was they were tolerant Alex Jones was lovely to me he used to joke about how he wanted to marry my boyfriend because we were so good at sound and he just wanted to take us out for for drinks all the time and they were extremely receptive because I guess we were useful to them but uh, we felt really welcomed by them in terms of kind of recognised movements on the extreme right, QAnon, of course, is the one that jumps out. What's your assessment of the threat of QAnon in the UK, Ireland in particular? 
It's difficult to assess the threat of what all of this stuff has morphed into, the QAnon stuff and the sort of uh, the big replacement ideas, because everything is locked down and because protest is, you know, basically kind of heavily restricted at the moment. We can't see the physical manifestations of all the stuff that's been bubbling up over the surface. But I think it's a huge threat. And just because we can't see it on our streets every Saturday doesn't mean it's not happening. We've had so many studies that have seen a direct link between time spent online and radicalization. We've had tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people spend an incredible amount uh, of time on the internet because of the pandemic who are now who are now seeing an explosion in the number of in the amount of engagement and the amount of in likes and the amount of activity with extreme groups like QAnon. I mean, if you look at the capital riot that happened only a few months ago, that is uh, only a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of I think the sort of stuff that we're going to see more and more and more now as Trump left and as it's all becoming more fractured. I think it's becoming even more dangerous because it's much more difficult to see the figureheads of all of these movements. You know, QAnon is all sort of community-led with sort of hundreds and hundreds of different leaders and all these kind of different secret Facebook groups. And just because we don't see it openly and just because there isn't one big figure that we can all look at and measure the size of doesn't mean it's not uh, just as dangerous. It's also far less accountable now as well. It's not all centered around, you know, the head of the Republican Party or a movement that's, you know, at least in some way restrained. It's all pushed onto the uh, darker sides of the internet. All of this stuff is now on Telegram and it's all on um, Parler and it's all on sites that are much more difficult to uh, regulate and to also see what's going on. So I think it's, it's, it's ex- extremely dangerous. And it is a formation of the movement that I was part of. It's a, it's a new version of it. I recognized a bunch of the faces at the Capitol riots when I sat in the office watching the footage of it happening live on CNN and thought, my gosh, the stuff that we, start, that we were there at the beginning has turned into something far more extreme and far more bizarre. I, I don't think I could ever have been on board with something like that. But all those people are. And so I think it's uh, super, super, super worrying. And again, just because everything's locked down, we don't see the physical manifestation as much. But I think when everything opens back up, we'll start to see it a lot more. We're also at a point where basically everyone knows someone that's a conspiracy theorist now. Everyone has a cousin who has a friend. Everyone has a mom who has an uncle. I hear stories every single day of someone saying, my gosh, my friend came to visit me for my birthday the other day. And she started talking about anti-lockdown and started talking about this and this and this. It's become a complete epidemic. Um, it's just harder to harder to spot at the moment. Two aspects to it that I'm just curious about as well, Caelan. First of all, the age demographic, as I understand it, it's certainly not exclusively younger people, that more middle-aged people can easily be radicalised as well, particularly depending on their personal circumstances. And the other thing is, as you say, it hasn't been manifested because of the lockdown. But how will that manifest itself, in your opinion? Will it be in demonstrations or is there potential for political power? Uh, through the ballot box, for example, to be garnered through it? I would say it would be uh, definitely a mix of both. If you look at Marjorie Taylor Greene in the United States, she's now polling as the number one favourite Republican candidate for all of the Republican voters. That's and she scary. is the most, yeah, yeah, the most extreme and, and the most openly uh, sympathetic to QAnon. She's said when we go on, we all, she's made comments that are literally direct flags to QAnon. And she's now the number one polling person. So polling wise, yes. And I see what's happening in the United States. I always see what's happening in Ireland and Britain and, and the rest of Europe following a couple of years later. It's just the way that things always seem to happen politically. And um, it's extremely worrying, but also physical manifestations. I think you'd see a massive amount of demonstrations happening that will be coming ever more increasingly violent over time. You like like the sort of stuff we saw at January 6th in America. And um, 
And yeah, it's, it's, it's extremely worrying. And the demographics are something that is really, really unheard of. This type of radicalization and this type of shifting to extreme thinking happening in educated groups and, and, and non-white groups as well is something that was unheard of before 2016 and before the explosion of the internet and all of these sites allowing all of this stuff to happen at an accelerated rate. It's basically when the YouTube and the, and the Facebook algorithms shifted from showing you content of your, that your friends were just posting and your family were just posting to driven content that keeps you on your site longer for, for driving for more and more extreme information. And when that shifted, everything kind of spiraled out of control. But, um, you know, it's, it's just completely unheard of. And I think the thing that was, that's most dangerous about it is the type of content that's changing people's minds and shifting so many demographics uh, that we haven't seen before is because it's so incredibly slick. The shows and the hosts that are, that are talking about this, that are leading people into and funneling people into far extremism, look very similar to a CNN show. They look very, very similar to something you'd see on your television. Extremely expensive, very, very, very slick sets. And it's really blurring the boundary between alternative fringe media and the stuff that you trust and watch on television. And it's all starting to look and sound the same. And that's what is so dangerous. The right weaponizing production value is one of the most dangerous things that's happened as well. And that's also why it's so incredibly convincing. We found this too. I realized when I was at Rebel Media and I was doing extreme content that when we upgraded our cameras and when we started really upgrading our set and making things look like basically vice news, that's kind of the style that that we ended up looking like, we had an incredible amount of increased support, an incredible amount of support from students and, and, and educated people and even middle-class people who just trusted it because it looks good. And that's sort of the super, super worrying thing about it as well. I think they've, they've realised the value of, 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 of doing that. And the other thing, I mean, there was always potential for people prior to the internet and, and, and even in a different time for, uh, you know, small, relatively smaller groups of people to be, to be radicalised by quasi-religious or whatever types of organisations. But the fact that it is becoming so prevalent, I mean, is it all down to the medium? The fact that the potential was always there to radicalise people? Or is it to do with culture in that there are an awful lot of people that are perhaps feel left out, left behind and are looking for something alternative. I mean, people, people are, very, are, are going to be very, very susceptible to this because it, it's, I've, I, I, it's, it's, um, it is the case that there are a huge number of people in the South of America who are completely left behind by politicians on the left and the right. They look at the Democrat Party, the Republican Party, and all they see is people in suits who have meant that their lives are so rubbish they can't even have, you know, clean drinking water. Look at Flint, look at all of these towns. They don't even have health care and they hate the system so much that they're susceptible to anything but the system, which is why they go and vote for, for extreme politicians or politicians that quote-unquote don't sound like everybody else. So there is an appetite for that there. But I don't think it's on the scale... Uh, I don't think that existing appetite is, is, is big enough uh, to reflect what's happening now. I think people's minds have genuinely been shifted and turned to content that they weren't looking for. For example, in 2016, when I typed Orlando into YouTube, I wasn't looking for extreme content. I wasn't looking for racist content or anything like that. YouTube gave it to me. 80% of all of the videos that I made on YouTube, the views from those from those videos, 80% of them were from non-subscribers and people that weren't looking for extreme content. They were put onto people's homepages who were just browsing YouTube looking at cat videos. So this has been pushed onto people that aren't looking for it on mass of a scale. And I think that's, that's the main, 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 main driver to all of it. 
Um, and that's, that's basically forming our entire culture. 90% of all of the information that we receive on a daily basis in our society is from our news feeds and is from the internet. And if you have 90% of that information molded and shifted and turned to extreme right-wing or extreme jihadi or left-wing content, then your entire worldview is going to be shifted to that, despite how uh, non-susceptible you might think you, you you could be to this kind of content or you know how reasonable you might think you'll be. It will shift the way you think. We're only beginning to understand the effects that social media has had on us as a species in the last few years. Um, we've had uprisings in countries linked to Facebook and linked to disinformation, and military coups linked to, linked to, to, to disinformation. And um, it's it's extremely it's extremely powerful, and it's all driven by the algorithms. And I, and I, going back to the original point, yes, there is a bit of an appetite for this stuff already, and there are people left behind, but not anything close to the number of people that are being radicalized now and and, and are susceptible to this content. It's all because it's been pushed to them. So that's that's obviously a reflection on the power of the social media companies. But do you see any prospect that that power can be properly reined in? Um, it's, it's difficult. We don't have a system in place and we don't have people in place who even understand how any of it works at the moment. The real Facebook oversight board, which is an amazing organization set up to, to highlight a lot of this stuff based in, in, in London have uh, recently spoken out about how they were at Senate hearings and they were at, um, you know, Congress hearings and things like that, talking about the dangers of radicalization of Twitter and Facebook and the judges and some of the top policymakers in America couldn't distinguish or understand the difference between a tweet and an email. Um, and so if we don't understand even the most basic forms of how these social media sites work from policymakers, when also at the same time, social media companies have just overtaken oil and military as the biggest lobbyists in America, there is no way we're going to be able to, to, to fix any of this, I don't think, or reduce the impact of it, or even fully understand the impact of it. It might be 10, 20 years from now until we can look back at society and see where things hit a turning point and see where things really, really went dark and understand the scale of what's happened. Um, so I'm pretty bleak about it. I think it's only going to get worse. Okay, and just turning briefly to Ireland, uh, Caelan, for a minute. Were, did you were you over here at some stage during the repeal the eight campaign with one of these groups? Yeah. So my, I think it was like one of my first videos. Uh, it was uh, when I just joined Rebel Media, like the week I joined. There was a repeal the eighth rally, and I know Rebel were very anti abortion and I didn't know much about it but I guess when you're in right-wing circles and you're in the far right and all of your friends become politically that way you're kind of all of your views even outside of the the basic ones that you had all start to kind of turn generally right-wing you know on climate change on everything and so I flew over here to um to go to that rally and uh, interviewed uh loads of the people who were there I guess I chose out the ones that were the kookiest one person said that abortion should be allowed like a day after the baby was born, you know, like silly things like that. Yeah. Um, put it together, and that went extremely viral as well on on Facebook. I think there was just I don't know how it was um, how it happened so quickly. I think it got like two million views or something like that. And did that group liaise with local groups in in, in Dublin or in Ireland? I don't think so. Um, that was just like a standard protest in Dublin, covered it, filmed it. It went out on Rebel Media, uh, and then it also went out on right. uh, on Facebook. But yeah, in a broader sense, from your knowledge. Is the potential or even the incidence of radicalisation, so to speak, in Ireland as bad as in bigger countries like the UK, the US? I don't know fully enough about it, but I know that there's, uh, I mean, an incredible amount of support for the kind of stuff that I used to do. I mean, when I was in uh, when Ireland, I, in Ireland, I went to uh, Wicklow 
county town hall, I think it was. And there were like even staff who were handing us notes, pieces of paper uh, when we were on our way out and we opened them up and they were like, keep up the good work. You know, we can't say anything because there's no free speech. The media controls everything, but like, keep it up. And there was a huge amount of support, like basically everywhere that we went, which was really interesting to us. So usually we gauge that to, 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 you know, back then we'd call it how based is a country, you know, how, how, you know, supportive is a country. And um, we had a huge amount of that in Ireland and obviously a huge amount of our views, like our biggest documentary borderless finished in, in, um, in, in, um, in Ireland. And that was sort of the end of that. But, um, I think uh, based on how quickly that video went viral that I put out, that sort of two million viewed one, I would say there's a huge, uh, huge underground sort of support for a lot of that stuff in 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 Ireland uh, that isn't very visible on the surface. It's very kind of quiet, but it's it's there. I mean, you had you know Gemma O'Doherty and people who we were filming with at the time, and and different people like that who were also experiencing the same kind of support on the streets and uh, who were getting an incredible amount of views. And I think the only reason that we don't see that, again, manifesting in such a vocal, open way is because they are banned from social media. But they're still going and they're still getting an incredible amount of engagement on hidden sites and sites like Telegram. So I think it's still pretty, um, yeah, still pretty worrying. And in that respect, do you know, for instance, is there much correlation between a political culture in a country and the, the level of radicalization. I'm thinking, for instance, obviously the, the US, and you mentioned the Republican Party and the prominence of that and, and a certain crossover. People will suggest in the UK to a certain extent elements of the Tory party and you've Farajnad, et cetera. And you go look at the likes of Hungary, perhaps Poland, um, you know, and Brazil, there's various countries where you have that sort of right wing, not extremism, but sort of, you know, strongman right wing, so-called type of politics. Now, here, certainly, as of yet, it's not that kind of culture as it isn't in per, per some other countries. Do, do you get the impression there's any correlation between a country's political culture and, and the radicalisation? Or, or is it so far underground that that that's not obvious? Yeah, I mean, of course, like the existing uh, culture of a country will determine how quickly stuff like this can grow and how quickly there's an appetite for it. But I also think that, uh, you know, countries that are more openly right-wing or culturally very populist or right-wing aren't really interested in a lot of this content because it's what they already believe. It doesn't feel underground. And if they want to support it, they can just go to the polls and they can just vote for the same prime minister again. I mean, it's not its not like a big thing that they're very, very excited about. The countries where this stuff is, is most worrying are actually very, very liberal countries. You see a lot of it happening in New Zealand where we had um, a few rallies. You see it in Norway as well. And uh, in Oslo when I was, and, and in Finland when I was there with, uh, with Lauren Southern, there were actually extreme, that we saw extreme neo-Nazi groups that were patrolling you know, um, diverse areas um, called the Soldiers of Odin and extremely uh, dangerous groups. Uh, and these are in some of the most liberal countries in, in Europe. And I think that's something that is, I think it's completely universal. Um, and yeah, I think the more liberal a country, the more susceptible to it is because you get this feeling that like, you know, this, this kind of thing is far more uh, extreme and more exciting or more different. I've never heard anything like this. And it's, it's kind of more enticing to a lot of people. Uh, whereas in Poland, you watch a rebel media video and it's like watching a government announcement. <laughs> it's just the yeah. same. <laughs> yeah, it's, just, it's pretty bad there, all right. And yourself, Caelan, do, do you get any vibes from uh, people who'd be on, on the left who perhaps are suspicious of you because of your past? And also, do you get any grief from those whom you would have had common cause with on the extreme right? Yeah, I mean, it was, it's been an interesting time because no one's really left uh, the online right 
who was as integrated in, in, into it as I was. And so I think a lot, because I was kind of one of the first people to do that, I think it was, people were very, very suspicious. They thought it was like an undercover operation. A lot of left-wingers thought that I was going to be secretly recording, you know, loads of people and then going back to Tommy and exposing, you know, uh, there was a lot of that sort of stuff and a, and a huge amount of suspicion. But um, it's been, you know, two and a half years since I left. I'm now uh, running Byline TV, which is the TV arm of very, very progressive newspaper in London called Byline Times. Mm. And everybody who I'm surrounded with now uh, is is extremely supportive of me and my work. You know, I work really closely with Dawn Butler and, and, and a lot of MPs who were completely on the opposite end of the stuff I was doing before. But actually, I realized that a huge amount of people believe that people can change, especially if they did this stuff when they were young. A lot of people right now are terrified about the rise of the far right and the rise of all of these young people who are sympathetic to to extreme views. And they want people to walk away from them as I do, and they want it to, to, to decrease. And that's only going to happen by allowing people to walk away um, and and speak out against it. So it's it was difficult at first. There were a few dodgy articles, but now I'm 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 really proud of the work that I'm doing and, and really like happy, you know, with um with 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 being able to counter a lot of the stuff I used to do. And then, of course, on the right, people are absolutely furious. There's Telegram groups where if I walk around London on a Saturday, I get recognized all the time by Tommy supporters who tweet out my location and try and find me and are absolutely furious. To the right, which is basically a cult at this point, the worst thing you can possibly be is a traitor. You know, you can be left-wing, you could be far left, but to be a traitor and to walk away is the worst, most evil thing you can do. So they're always looking for me and, and are, are basically furious. Uh, there was a crazy amount of articles and conspiracy theories about me to discredit me when I walked away, saying I was a government agent or this or this or this, or I stole a million dollars and all these crazy things, to just to try and stop other people walking away as well. Because the greatest threat to the ideology that I was a part of is people who believed in it, who walked away and said, actually, it's nonsense for this and this and this and this and this reason. Because um, you can't pass that off as just well as the left-wing media. So, th- so they're furious. Uh, and that's difficult, but I have, again, support network around me. I have uh, some security and you know the office is well protected. So I, I think it's uh, okay for now. And you quite obviously have been de-radicalised. So what would be your advice to, for example, pe- and I've actually come across one or two people who mention about family members and, and they um, veering down, heading down those rabbit holes and what have you. What would be your advice to people who recognise somebody relatively close to them that appears to be radicalised in, in terms of dealing with the issue? It's really, really difficult um, because arguing on the points and arguing on the facts with these things doesn't make any difference to these people. They will have been bombarded with, quote, you know, the real facts online. Anytime anyone who's reasonable has an argument to counter it, they will have seen 10 counter-arguments to be able to take it apart they will have been armed with crazy, crazy amounts of disinformation and their minds will probably not be changed by anything that you say to them by any point. Um, and honestly, it's it's extremely difficult. I would, I would literally just say if it's someone close to you to do everything you can to try and tell that person to spend less time on the internet, to go outside more, to see the real world more, to, you know, after the pandemic's closing down, to, to go back out into your towns and to go into a pub where there are normal people. You, the, the, the issue is with it is that our views, you know, as individuals are shaped by our environment around us. You know, geographically, this was the case for thousands of years. You'd go to your town, you'd go to your pub, you'd go to a shop, you'd sit there, and if you had some crazy views, you were the only one there. And those views would be countered every day. 
you would say something, you know, uh, that was completely outlandish in a pub and everyone would turn around and say, oh, you know, snap out of it, you're being ridiculous. You know, your views were shaped and molded by the general consensus of what people around you believe. And that has been completely thrown out the window now because geography is no longer the case. Our views are now shaped by what type of Facebook groups we can join. You could be one of a million people in the world who believes that the earth is flat, but no one in your town and no one in your village will believe the same thing and those views will probably disappear. Now you can formulate a group with those million people and now everything you believe is fine, everything you believe is normal and everything, because you have completely shaped your environment to cater to, to extreme views and that's been done for these people. So it's about taking them away from that environment, taking them out of it, going back out into the real world again, going into a pub again and just connecting with normal people. I think that's the only way that any of it can really be solved. Um, and again, if you're someone that's it's extreme right or you're someone that, that sees himself in any of these circles or QAnon circles, honestly, I meet these people all the time. I get recognized in the street all the time by Tommy supporters who still think I'm involved in this stuff. And all I say to them is, I'm not going to argue with you on whether you're right or wrong, but I'm just going to say that I was involved in it. And I know that they're grifters and they're people who are doing it just for money. And the people that you're listening to either don't believe what they're telling you or they believe a version of it that's so extreme, you would want nothing to do with it. So just trust me based on what the people who you are listening to, how they're benefiting and profiting from you. It's the only way that they can be pulled back from it. To finish, Caelan, have you any note of optimism? <laughs> I don't have any optimism, to be honest. You know, I set up a group to help de-radicalise people and to tell their stories and to help them walk away, and that's been fairly successful. But there are far more people joining these groups than leaving them right now. There are a tiny amount leaving them, and it's just growing and growing and growing. We have a political system that doesn't even stand how it works. And we have, again, the seven out of the ten most engaged posts last week on Facebook were from the Ben Shapiro show. And that is, to me, extremely worrying. It shows that the trend is getting far and far, 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 uh, far more um, rapid and, and, and bigger in scale than, than it was when I joined. So no, I don't have much, uh, much hope, unless there's a global internet outage <laughs> that lasts forever. Right. <laughs> there was one of something like that in a the movie there briefly, yeah. Listen, Caelan Robertson, thank you very much for joining us today. It was certainly very enlightening. Thank you so much. Uh, I'd also like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thank you for listening. You can get us on all the usual platforms and you can get your subscription to the Irish Examiner on our website. Staying by the wall. We'll see you next week. 